0: Welcome to Life, Death, Law. I'm Liza Hanks.
1: If you become a patient, either by an accident or an illness, in the United States, you will automatically receive aggressive, invasive care by default.
0: That's Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter, physician, speaker, activist, and the force behind two amazing documentaries, Extremists and Endgame, that I urge all of my listeners to watch. I asked Dr. Ungerleiter to be on the show today because both extremists and Endgame are films that take us in the most honest and heartfelt way into a world that many of us will end up in someday, the ICU, where life and death decisions can be both difficult and confusing. If you have ever struggled with how to fill out an advance directive or worried about what you would do if you had to make a decision about terminating life support for a loved one? And honestly, who hasn't? I know you'll enjoy listening to today's show. So Shoshana, I'm so excited to have you on Life, Death, Law today. I think the work you're doing around End of Life is just so important and needs to be done. So thank you for coming.
1: Thank you for having me. Well, I don't
0: think my listeners, they may not know about your the two movies that you've been behind producing, but they're both amazing. So maybe we could start talking about Extremists and Endgame. And if you'd like to do a quick summary of the, the movies, that would be great. And I'd love to know what what on earth prompted you to get those done on top of being a busy doctor?
1: Yes, well, uh, it's an interesting story. So I uh, funded Extremis, which is a short documentary about end-of-life decision-making in the intensive care unit by uh, director, Dan Krause, who's local. It was uh, filmed at, at Highland Hospital in Oakland and features uh, the wonderful Dr. Jessica Zitter, who's a, also a close personal friend of mine. The, the film was the very first short documentary that Netflix ever bought. So they only very recently got into the business of, um, of acquiring short documentaries. And we premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival back in uh, early 2016. And then we ended up winning the, the festival, uh, which was thrilling. And then uh, the film got nominated for an Academy Award and two Emmys last year. And then uh, the the second film you mentioned I executive produced it's called Endgame, also a short documentary on hospice and palliative care, by the San Francisco based uh, multi Academy Award winning directors Rob Epstein and Jeffrey Friedman, and it was filmed at UCSF here in San Francisco, of course, as well as then Hospice Project, and features the thought leadership of B J Miller, who practices at, at UCSF and uh, really has become a, uh, a leading voice in in our space. Uh, that film premiered at, at the Sundance Film Festival uh, earlier in January this year and was also acquired by Netflix. So they're both available on Netflix. You can watch them anytime in multiple languages. So we're really excited about
0: that. I think that um, what makes the films powerful is that you just show the decisions and the, the conflicts and the intensity and the beauty of end of life without having to say a lot. It's it's really an experience of, of showing people this experience that waits for all of us in one way or another and makes it so human. And so um, I wouldn't say inviting, but I would say engaging. And I think... You know, as an estate planner, I, I work with people every day and I ask them to sign advanced directives. And almost always there's this moment in the room where people get really tense and really uncertain and really scared. And I think if my clients, I'm going to tell them all to watch this film, ex- especially extremists, because you see the pain in those families when they don't know what their loved ones wanted and and when their loved ones aren't in a position to tell them what they want and the burden that places on the family to have to decide. So I think they're super useful tools because I want all of my clients to envision that moment, but it's really hard for people. Right.
1: That's right. That's absolutely right. And that was the main motivation for me to get involved in film. I, you know, practice medicine. I studied medicine. I know very little about film uh, as it turns out, but uh, this, the first opportunity extremist really fell in my lap in terms of something to support and really, you know, shine a light in some of these dark places like the ICU, which nobody gets to really see uh, what it's like unless you're, you know, a, a healthcare provider or maybe a patient or a family member um, dealing with um, a, a serious illness. So I personally feel like the more that people can kind of engage uh, through film or through any means, but um, you know, since we're talking about film it, it, to sort of empower them to be able to make decisions that are in line with their goals and their values um, to make sure that, you know, if God forbid they're in those situations that, that they'll sort of understand maybe some of their options or the right conversations to be having so that the care that they get is care that they understand, you know, and that they really want?
0: Absolutely. You know, I think that, um, I think that, uh, one of the real problems that I see as a lawyer is that, you know, we ask people to fill out an advance directive that's pretty cursory, right? It's kind of like check the box if you don't want to be kept alive by artificial means. And the problem is when you get into the ICU, because I know I've been through it with my dad, um, and you show it in the film, um, very seldom do people actually tell you if you're the loved ones of a patient that the end of life is there. It's, it's this kind of this gray area and there's one diagnosis after another often. And very few doctors say what Dr. Zitter says in that movie, which is, you know, we got to talk about the end here. Most of the time you're just exhausted. There's a different doctor every eight hours and no one will really tell you what you can see happening right in front of your eyes, right? Which is that somebody's failing. And so, you know, the end of life seems really clear cut when you're sitting in the lawyer's office, but it's not when you're sitting in the hospital. I mean, that's been my experience and many clients' experiences. And I wonder if part of the value of the movie is helping people understand that the more they understand going into that situation, the better they're going to be able to cope with it.
1: That's right. I think that it's, it's such a new often, such a nuanced situation that it's, uh, it's not so clear cut. Like, I, I want this. And, and not this and boom, I'm, I'm done. It's, it really is about having in-depth conversations uh, with your healthcare providers, with your family, and conversations less about sort of medical logistics and much more about what matters most to you for, you know, living your life. I think those, the, the, the families, the patients that have had those kinds of conversations um, are much better equipped if if maybe when they end up in a situation um, like an ICU, because it's impossible to make a thoughtful decision, you know, when you're dealing with somebody who's critically ill in your family. I mean, you really um, it behooves all of us to have conversations early and and frankly quite often about about this um, because things change over time, of course. And you know, I think that um, the overarching kind of Issue that I think most people, again, unless they work in healthcare, don't realize is that you know you if you become a patient uh, either by an accident or you know an illness in the United States, you will automatically receive aggressive invasive care by default, no matter how old you are, no matter what your underlying medical problems are, and even if it won't help you in the end. So you know we we know that something like 80% of people say they want to die at home and only 20% actually do which you know blows my mind
0: I see that I feel like your work sort of falls into two buckets and I might be wrong about this but you've got one bucket of working with the medical profession and I think to try to educate doctors that death isn't failure death is inevitable death is a natural part of life and trying to help them Address that, I think, in a more holistic way with their patients. At least that seems like one of the things I see you do. And then there's this other side of dealing with the patients and, and on, so not the healthcare provider side, but on the side of the families, you know, that you need to have these conversations and you need to talk to each other. Would you, would you say that I've got that right in terms of the two sort of prongs of the, of the work that you're doing?
1: That's absolutely right. I, I started out focused on medical education reform and at, Sutter Health, CPMC here in San Francisco, where I train and where I work, we started really the first of its kind mandatory training program for all of the clinical trainees, the residents in, in palliative medicine fundamentals, communication skills training, and modules on physician wellness to prevent burnout. And that starts from year one of training, whereas most programs have something in the third year as sort of as an afterthought, as these doctors are sort of out the door onto their careers. And we feel strongly that it needs to be a foundational component of their, of their training. You know, a, a recent study came out in the Journal of the American Medical Association, I think it was 2016, serving practicing physicians. And that's something like 70% of them said that they hadn't been trained to have difficult conversations with patients.
0: Well, I would say that's true of lawyers, too. I mean, nobody t- teaches you in law school how to talk about death and dying with your clients, right? right. All right. you're taught is to, to limit your liability and to uh, try to anticipate and solve legal problems. But, you know, as you said, I think really clearly, like, this isn't, dying is not a medical issue. It's not a legal issue. It's just a human issue. It crosses all these disciplines, right? That's
1: right. And and to answer your, your earlier question, you know, I I started out focusing on healthcare systems reform, and then quickly realized that you know sustainability and scalability between institutions and different states is really challenging because um, each each organization, each hospital health system, has their own way of doing things and paying for things and thinking about what's right for their patients. And I realized that I don't think that the the shift in you know healthcare or the, the or the consciousness of this. Country is going to happen from the top down. I think it's going to be a much more grassroots movement of consumers, meaning people, patients, families, demanding better of our system. And so I shifted a lot of my focus to public engagement around this topic.
0: No, that's great. So let's talk about some best practices because the people who listen to my podcast, I think, um, by and large, are consumers. They're consumers of healthcare and they're consumers of uh, legal care. And they're interested in being proactive and thoughtful about life and death and loss. So what are the things that you would recommend any family have in place? Let's just say like a typical client of mine that maybe we're between 40 and 60, or if they're on the forties side, they have aging parents in the 70s and 80s. So, so sort of, you know, middle-aged people with aging parents, you know, what should they have in place and what should they be thinking about, do you think?
1: Sure. Um, You know, I think I think advanced directives are really, really important. So whether you get at that through, uh, you know, a trust and estate attorney or through a document uh, you find online or something like the five wishes, uh, you know, an advanced directive, a more ethical will that you can access on the Internet, any of those things. So I think documents, um, because I'm talking to a lawyer, are really, really important.
0: Yeah, but I'm a, I'm a weird lawyer. I think the documents are only useful for the conversations they engender. To be honest,
1: well, exactly. So that that's what I was just about to say. Um, the the conversations are really are really the key part, and it actually turns out, and the, the data supports that. No matter if you have a document, and it can be notarized, it can be made into a plaque, it can be you know tattooed on your body. But if you don't have a conversation um, with the people that you love, there's a good chance that. The documents either won't be able, you know, aren't accessible. Um, they don't see them when you show up to the ER or the e- the emergency, you know, um, medical team that comes to your house in the setting of a and a cardiac arrest. Just for whatever reason, um, documents often aren't followed, which, you know, blows my mind. That's a whole other conversation. So really making sure that your, your family, that the people that you love, um, have an understanding about who you are, you know, as a person living your life and what matters to you? What is your minimum quality of life acceptable to you? What sort of trade-offs are you, you know, willing to make and not make? And again, that shifts over time, you know, as people age and their medical conditions change. And then I think having at least one person, if not two, uh, who will serve as your, what we call healthcare proxy or power of attorney for healthcare. And that's the really the the one person that is uh is the is the point uh or the 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 main person who will speak for you if you're unable to speak for yourself now that's only if you're incapacitated in some fashion and can't speak for yourself because we obviously want to talk to you if we're able to but if you can't that's really, really important.
0: so i've got I've got two questions to follow up on that with you um because you're right. I am a lawyer and I do draft these documents. Um, so you know there's an advanced directive, which is what lawyers do with uh, our clients, right? and we name a healthcare agent, someone to act. Uh, on their behalf and make medical decisions short of end of life decisions, like what doctor, what hospital, what procedure. And then we ask them to state their end of life choices in the directive. But we're usually very, these are very short statements. They're not like the five wishes that go into much more detail, which so, and that's partly because of our training, right? Was sometimes saying less is better if you're worried about liability or conflict. Um, but what I hear from palliative care nurses and doctors is they would like to know more. They, they would like an advanced directive that says a lot more than the ones that lawyers typically draft. And I'm curious if that, if research bears that out or if your own experience in the ICU bears that out, you know, what, what should an advanced directive say? Right? Should it just say the bare minimum, I do or I don't want to be kept alive by artificial means? Or should it say, you know, this is how I feel about antibiotics. This is how I feel about artificial nutrition. This is how I feel about being at home. Um, What kind of advanced directives do you appreciate the most when you're dealing with the terminally ill?
1: Wow, great question. I think for me, the more information, the better. And I guess I'm only speaking for myself, although I will say that I've talked with many, many colleagues about this. uh, and, And we always feel like because we're often meeting someone for the very first time when they show up in the emergency room or we're seeing them in the ICU or in the hospital. So we don't know anything about them and often unfortunately they can't speak for themselves and so or it's such an acute crisis moment that we have to know in almost instantaneously you know a snapshot of who they are and what you know how they've lived their lives you know and and what they might want in the setting of an acute uh, illness and so the more in depth these conversations these documents can be the better and it can go you know, uh, talking about antibiotics, talking about, um, uh, having a ventilator breathe for you, you know, artificial nutrition. Um, but also for me, I, I sort of like knowing who this person is just in general, like living their lives, you know, what, 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 you know, what, what, how did your, when I, when I talk to families, I say, you know, what, how does your mom spend her time? You know, what does she like to do? Is she leaving the house these days? You know, is she somebody that ever, you know, mentioned, if I, if I can't uh, breathe on my own, you know, do what I want a machine to help me breathe? And obviously, these are very, very nuanced conversations and sort of context-specific in terms of illness. Um, but, but the more information, uh, the better for me, which is why, you know, The Five Wishes is a great document that really goes deep. Um, there's, there's card games like Go Wish. And that, that families can play to sort of foster a conversation that's that's more in-depth than just check boxes, you know, on a, on a form. Uh, there's there's programs like Death Over Dinner, um, which is a website people can go to, to to help facilitate a conversation with family or with friends about um, these kinds of issues that can often be difficult to talk about. I mean, there's, there's definitely a, a few out there.
0: So, okay. So you, you on the doctor side of this divide would like an advanced directive that goes into a lot more detail about who this person is and and what's important to them. Um, so now I have another question, which is the POLST, which in California, right? The physician order for life sustaining treatment, which I tell my clients is something you do with your doctor, um, which is a medically binding order about what you do and don't want at end of life. But First of all, do you see a lot of patients with that extra document and And does it help you as a doctor uh, deliver the kind of care that person wanted at end of life versus someone who just has an advanced directive?
1: Yes. Yeah. so the the pulsed form and whenever you say the word word pulse, the p o l s t it's this you know, I think of this bright pink piece of paper that like flashes. and and so it's wonderful that it's bright pink, although I, I hear that. In California and around across the country, we're trying to go electronic with it. There might not be any more pink pieces of paper in years to come, which would be great for accessibility issues, but um, I, I kind of love the pink. Um, you know, for the pulse the form, I do see a lot because I practice hospital medicine, meaning that I only see patients in in an acute hospital setting, and, and many of them come from uh, nursing homes or skilled nursing facilities, not necessarily from the home environment, and so they're, they're often traveling, you know, by ambulance with a pulsed form. And and a pulse is really typically for people who are dealing with many chronic medical problems or who are seriously ill. Um, I, I don't typically recommend a pulsed form just for any patient. Because it's not really applicable, especially younger people who aren't, um, who aren't dealing with illness at that point. So um, I think of an advanced directive is appropriate for any time, you know, in life, whether you're, you're 25 or you're 85. And the pulse is typically um, helpful for people who are maybe in and out of the hospital more frequently, who are living um, in something like, uh, you know, a skilled nursing facility because they require more care in their activities of daily living due to illness. And so they're, they're wonderful to have uh, for us in the hospital because, again, we often don't know these patients well or we can read about them in their records, but we don't have a sense of their particular wishes around being acutely ill and whether or not they would want aggressive means of resuscitation or if they want to um, die, you know, in, in, in a more natural sense and, and be comfortable. Um, so they're, they're very, very helpful.
0: Well, and I was wondering if you wouldn't mind, since it's so great to have a doctor on the show, um, tell people a little bit about what palliative care can offer, because as you've said, in some things I've read that you've written and been quoted as saying that, you know, many people don't understand the value of palliative care and they think of it synonymous with hospice care and they think of it synonymous with end of life care. But, it's broader than that. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to educate my listeners.
1: Yes. So important. Yeah. I, I, something like 76% of Americans just aren't familiar with the term palliative care. So I spend a lot of my time talking about it. Um, it's, uh, it's a specialty of medicine. It's actually only been officially, you know, around for about 10 years, which is shocking to me. Um, and it's a, it's a team-based approach to medical care, that's focused on quality of life for patients and their families who are facing a life-limiting illness. And it can be used at any time during the course of illness. So Often people think of palliative care and they think it's the same thing as hospice or they think it's only just for the last moments of life. And that's absolutely not true. Um, the earlier that, that people are referred to palliative care, you know, the better. Outcomes are actually better when people years out from the end, um, have an extra layer of support for issues related to pain, to psychosocial issues, to spiritual or existential suffering uh, in the face of illness. So most palliative care programs, as I said, are a team and it's a nurse, it's a social worker, it's a chaplain, it's a physician, and often others that, that really work together to uh, to focus on what what matters most to people and their families for as long as they have left.
0: How does somebody get access to that? Because I can tell you that when my father was ill in 2010, I, I had a palliative care nurse who was helping me advocate for him in the hospital. But the hospital he was in did not have a palliative care program, so it was definitely like fighting upwind to get him uh, to get aggressive care stopped for him. They had no program at all. So how does how do you do it if you're just a confused, exhausted person at the ICU in a hospital you don't even know?
1: Yeah, I would say, sadly, it's, it, that happens from time to time, and I'm really sorry to hear that was your experience. You know, we're we're lucky in that now most hospitals do have palliative care in some fashion, and many programs are now also instituting outpatient palliative care, so clinics. So when people are well enough to travel back and forth from home or wherever they're living, uh, to get support, they, they can do that. If, if you are, have the unfortunate um, situation of being in a place where there's no palliative care, you know, my, my thought would be to still sort of ask about it and see what, what services are available and continue to, if, if you're advocating for uh, a loved one or a friend, or if you happen to be a patient, you know, continuing to say, listen, like, this is, this is what I want. This is what I don't want. I, I want to talk to my doctors about this um, and keep really pushing. I, you know, I feel strongly that uh, this is something where we're really failing our patients across the country in, in terms of these, again, kinds of conversations that we're not, as providers, bringing them up readily, not talking about prognosis, not being open and honest with patients as we need to be. I think, luckily, there are, as I said, many, many palliative care programs. Uh, around the country, so continuing to just say, listen, let's let's talk about palliative care, and and really, I would say, asking for it if you can before you you end up in the hospital. the The hope would be that that your doctor would would recommend it, um, but if if not, I think asking about it is really important.
0: Are there resources for people who who are looking for palliative care uh, support in a in an environment where that's not easily available in the hospital they're in?
1: Not many, unfortunately. The the one resource I really love and it's, and it's really comprehensive in terms of educational materials and then also region specific uh, resources is getpalliative.org. org. It's a really wonderful resource that is totally geared towards patients and families. And they've done a really great job. They have a provider directory where you just enter, you know, your zip code or your city and things pop up. And it's it's very well-respected and, and updated very frequently.
0: I know you're busy and I want to take advantage of the time I've got. So I've got two questions for you. One, what's your next project on the consumer side of this? And two, uh, I'd like to invite you to tell my listeners about your upcoming conference in San Francisco. Well,
1: at the moment, that's, that's my main focus. So Endwell um, is an uh, international symposium bringing together the world of healthcare, of law, of policy, of the media, arts, education, patient advocacy, technology, technology, and funders, all with the goal of generating human-centered innovation around the end-of-life experience. So the name of the conference is Endwell. It takes place December sixth in San Francisco. It's an annual convening, sort of a, a TED-style event. So we have many speakers throughout a very full day on a main stage, delivering very you know high-quality short uh, presentations, and on a, on a number of topics. And, and the cool thing about Endwell is we bring together a very diverse audience and, and really, really diverse speakers to talk about this.
0: But focused, I think, more on this sort of systemic change, right, on, this, on, the, on the provider side and not so much on the consumer side. Or did I, do I have that wrong?
1: No, actually, it's, it's much more. Um, it has nothing to do. Well, it's not directly related to providers at all. We're explicitly not a healthcare conference. We want to open it up to a dialogue, you know, you said it earlier, I feel strongly that, you know, the end of life experience, serious illness is not just a medical issue. This is a human issue. And the more that we can hear from diverse voices, people who are experts, you know, in their technical fields, and then people who are experts in life, um, coming together to talk about solutions. So yeah, endwellproject.org is the website. And um, it's going to be a great event.
0: I think one of the craziest things about death is it's universal. Every single person listening to this podcast is definitely going to die at some point. I feel strongly that I can make that commitment. Um and yet for so many people when it when it actually hits their family, it's like it's never happened to anyone else and it's incredibly isolating. And so, you know, your job, like my job is one of the few places where people meet uh with someone who sees it all the time, <laughs> right? And so and can normalize it for them. So I think it's, and that's one of the purposes of this podcast is to help people not feel so isolated and alone in something that's so universal and ubiquitous, but, but unspoken. So I think it's great what you're doing. And I hope you do another movie at some point because there's lots more stories to be told, I think.
1: Absolutely. And, and I feel the same way about the work that you're doing.
0: Yeah. Well, is there anything that I didn't ask that you wish I had? No, I think, I think we, uh,
1: we covered a lot of ground and,
0: And I will definitely put um, links to all the stuff that we talked about in the show notes so that people can find out more about you and the work that you did and are doing. And I thank you so much for being on the show. You've just listened to my conversation with Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter. For show notes with links to all of the resources that we've discussed, as well as information about the End Well Conference and links to the films Extremis and Endgame, please go to lifedeathlaw.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Life, Death, Law. To find out more about today's episode, or to send me a question or a suggested topic for future podcasts, go to lifedeathlaw.com, send me an email at lifedeathlawpodcast at gmail.com, or call me on the Life, Death, Law phone line at 669-232-0872. That's 669-232-0872. To subscribe to Life, Death, Law, go to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. So take care, and remember, when it comes to life and death and law, we are all in the same boat. Until next time, I'm Liza Hanks. Bye!